When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose. Uh, Welcome to The Bigger Picture, where I'm joined today by Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Um, Tim, if we have time, we're going to talk about three topics. Where are we going to begin? I think you want to talk well, a little bit about science and culture wars. I'm intrigued to hear what that is. Well, in our national political life, we've, we've, we've long been talking about uh, culture wars. And this relates to uh, the, the idea that really uh, political discourse and indeed political disagreement have become so heated um, in recent years. Uh, and people have such diff- profoundly different perspectives that it almost goes beyond uh, mere regular politics and public policy, and it strays into broader issues of culture, things like gender, things like sexuality, things like race. Uh, all these things are, in a sense, highly politicized, but you know, they bleed out into the broader culture and the way you view things, such as history, uh, such as current affairs, such as geopolitics, all kinds of things. And, um, uh, and I, uh, but what intrigues me is how um, those culture wars are increasingly now, of course, embracing the world of, of science. Um, and one of the most intriguing things about the, the recent COP26, uh, which is still continuing up there in Glasgow, uh, is how um, it's been a fascinating blend of activists and demonstrators um, and rather stolid looking politicians, most of whom seem to have flown in extraordinary jets with um, huge motorcades and vast entourages. 400 private jets, we understand. Exactly. I mean, you know, just a vast air force, really, um, polluting, no doubt, all the way. But what what intrigues me um, is uh, the way that, you know, these aspects of science are now part of the political or cultural wars and where people have such different views. So um, the first thing, as we've noted before, although there were Russian and Chinese delegations in attendance, Xi Jinping refused to attend, uh, the Russian uh, leadership, Vladimir Putin, uh, has refused to attend. Um, most of the activists, um, the people who, you know, uh, are very much afraid of global warming and who want politicians to act uh, radically and quickly, uh, most of them seem to have uh, put most of their firepower on the already developed nations, you know, the European countries, the United Kingdom, uh, North America. Um, I find that slightly intriguing in that um, I think if I was running a, a movement, um, uh, you know, hostile to uh, climate change and global warming, I think I'd want to disperse my forces between the people actually attending COP26, but I would want also a demonstration uh, outside the embassies of the of the uber noughties, such as the Russians and the Chinese. Uh, yes. say, say for the embassies and actually going to Russia or China and trying it. 
well indeed um, that that would not uh, go down too well um and and who knows if uh, to make a serious point of you would indeed return um unscathed but uh uh yes i do find this intriguing while cop 26 has been going some interesting data uh, has been released from the um the, the uk's office of national statistics which shows that really over the last 30 years um uh, Britain's consumption of energy has actually fallen by 13%. And the reality is more and more people are taking uh, climate change seriously. More people are recycling. More people are looking to alternative solutions you know, than the old fossil or, or, or hydrocarbon models uh, of fuel. And uh, it seems now clear that it was actually in the late 1990s that the old ways of behaving peaked. Um, that with the arrival of the new millennium, it does seem that British public opinion and British practice um, has changed. And that's not simply uh, the result, I would suggest, of, of legislation or coercive measures, if you want to call them that, by, by the British government. I think there really has been um, a sea change of opinion uh, amongst ordinary people. Lots of people have simply decided to change their behaviours in a fairly spontaneous and bottom-up Yes, way. I no longer fly by private jet, Tim. Well, there we are, Simon, and I confess I'm the same, so snap. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, I mean, to, to build on this, I mean, what, 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 what's intriguing, of course, is that while there seems to be a degree of consensus um, I mean, there are new targets at COP26 to reduce methane, uh, lots of um, uh, people in the private sector signing up uh, to, uh, to diversify uh, energy. Um, uh, there was a big deal, for example, I'm not sure a lot of people noticed this, although it's reported in the Financial Times, the Times and the Guardian, huge uh, new deal uh, that um, was signed between Rolls-Royce and Qatar uh, to build a huge campus in uh, the, the, the north. Um, this was a four billion pound investment uh, to employ more than a thousand people in a new campus dedicated to work with Rolls-Royce and find new technological solutions, new advanced solutions mm -hmm. to climate change. What's intriguing though about all this um, is that how, just as you know, practice in Britain and, and in Europe seems to be changing, just as there does seem to be some kind of consensus, particularly amongst uh, most of the advanced democracies over in the United States, um, politics continues to polarize. Uh, Joe Biden uh, seems to have become incredibly unpopular um, in recent months. And of course, the Republicans have had um, a surprise victory um, with uh, their person, uh, Glenn uh, Youngkin, in uh, Virginia. Uh, Virginia is traditionally uh, very much a, a Democrat area, and uh, uh, Glenn Youngkin has won um, uh, the, the race there um, uh, to be uh, governor. And uh, if this indeed heralds um, the coming back, particularly in the midterm elections next year, of the Republicans, and if the Republicans go on being led or, uh, by Donald Trump, and if he wins the nomination for the, for the, for the, to be their presidential candidate um, in, 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 in a couple of years, well, uh, uh, 
what on earth will that do, uh, given Donald Trump's historic views on climate change um, and his hostility um, to a lot of the sort of changes uh, that, that we have started to see enacted at, at this COP26? Yes. Um, fascinating, I suppose. It, it is quite unusual for an incoming president to become quite so unpopular so quickly, isn't it? Um, yes, it is. And, and to such a, a huge degree. I mean, I have to say, I remember arguing with you, suggesting that I thought that uh, Joe Biden would try to heal the wounds in the US and he would try to sort of pour, pour oil. I know it's a mm. no longer a fashionable thing to say, but on the waters. Um, and that he would run as a purple president. I remember. Uh, you remember that. Um, well, actually, uh, he has veered much more to the left than I and I think many other sort of middle-of-the-road commentators expected. And this is not going down well with sort of what you might call middle America. Um, and one of the reasons it's not going down, not only is he spending huge sums of money, um, uh, uh, and raising taxes, um, but uh, he is pushing through um, uh, agendas that many voters, many centre and centre-right voters, regard as a, a sort of a part of, of the culture war, um, particularly in the area of race and gender politics in, in, in education. And as, as we know, uh, from history, uh, there are uh, significant religious factors in the United States, um, and uh, many parts of America is prone to a small C conservatism in terms of culture. Um, and in that way, it is somewhat different uh, from more progressive and more urban areas, um, for example, in Western Europe. But, but where this is going, I don't know. Uh, it's interesting that Joe Biden and his people seem to have been taken by surprise, as indeed as much of the mainstream media in America. What can be done to correct it, I don't know, and where this will go and how it might play into the hands of Donald Trump and the Republican right, I don't know. Presumably before that, though, the midterms will be incredibly important, won't they? Because the Republicans will be hoping that they can do incredibly well then and basically stymie whatever Biden would want to do. Exactly. And it could be that with those midterms next year in 2022, um, if uh, this result in uh, Virginia sort of heralds things to come in a few months time, then uh, Joe Biden, uh, I think, will be in trouble. Uh, his program uh, has already been watered down um, in Congress um, in, in many areas. Uh, but, you know, he could end up, dare I say it, of being a, a fairly constrained, almost lame duck president. And, um, and you know, that is, I think, going to come as a surprise to an awful lot of people, particularly people in Europe who thought, you know, they could have sighed with relief when Trump moved on yes. and thought that, that we were going to return to a more moderate and middle-of-the-road approach. Um, I think a lot of people did not expect Biden to become so unpopular so quickly and for all the talk, therefore, to start being around a Republican and sort of Trump resurgence. Yes. 
Now, there's a lot. There's a lot of time ahead, you know, between now and the nomination for president. An awful lot of things can happen. But um, one of the most powerful cards in terms of politics and public opinion is the card of seeming inevitability. And if it starts to feel, you know, with the midterms next year, that somehow the Republicans are coming back and they hold the card of inevitability, um, then 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 we could see a very polarized United States uh, in the years to come. Let's change subject. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio, where I'm in conversation with Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Um, so, Tim, where are we going to turn our attention now? So I think we've got to look at healthcare. Um, here we are um, in you know, early November. Um, uh, whether this pandemic, this COVID pandemic, is really over or not, I think as we move into winter, there have to be question marks. Uh, we've seen warnings recently from eminent uh, and trusted government scientists. Uh, my wife, of course, is a consultant uh, infection and prevention control nurse, um, and she knows only too well um, that uh, not, not only um, are our health services under huge pressure, but that with COVID, um, you know, it's important that everyone's jabbed um, and, and that also uh, we watch out for huge winter flu pressures this year because so many of us uh, were social distancing uh, last winter. I think a lot of people are afraid that there could be a resurgence in flu um, and, and that the NHS could be put under huge pressure. What is really interesting, though, um, uh, and, and my wife has alluded uh, to this you know, sort of privately in recent months, she'd been saying that an awful lot of very ill people um, in with COVID and her intensive care are precisely the people who have not um, uh, been vaccinated. They haven't had their their jab, and we now know uh, from data again released recently by the Office of National Statistics, a very a reliable source that unvaccinated people are up to 32 times more likely to die if they catch COVID than the double jabbed. But of course, many of those people don't simply die. Um, they they often uh, have um, you know a huge amount of health input um, and you know including intensive care beds. So I think the message has to be as we go into winter, have your flu jabs. Um, take COVID seriously. Don't think by any means that we're through this uh, and make sure that you not only double jab, but when they become available, also have your boosters. And that's important also, I should say, um, because one of the things that COVID has done um, through the, the, the kind of the knitting together of NHS facilities with our independent hospital sector, and the military medical sector is, you know, we've had a full mobilization, not simply of the NHS, but our entire national health system. Um, but again, recent data shows that although the government have made 10 billion available um, for the NHS to use um, marginal or spare capacity available in independent sector hospitals, um, the NHS is not always um, doing that to the degree that they should 
to reduce incredibly high weighting. Which does seem quite crazy. Before we turn to that, though, um, uh, one thing that everybody, I mean, whether they're critical of the efficiency of the NHS or not, seemed everybody seemed full of admiration for the way in which the the, the jabs were administered. I mean, all I heard from people was how efficient every vaccination centre was and, and how efficient it was actually notifying people they should go. I'm sure there were some mistakes, but it was rather unlike the NHS that we all know and um, perhaps love. Um, but I've been reading, I'm not due for my booster quite yet, but I've been reading lots of people saying, well, this doesn't seem to be run the same way, the booster thing at all. So, um, I'm, I'm, if I've got it right, it's more a centralised NHS system, whereas it was my GP who you know, arranged everything last time. So why are the boosters going wrong when we were so efficient with the first and the second jabs? Well, I think, I think you know, it, it's a question of what's this space. Um, uh, my understanding is, from announcements in recent days, is that, yes, most, the vast majority of people now have had their first and second jab. And now um, the government are, again, mobilising uh, the NHS to administer... Hmm booster jabs. Um, uh, I think, though, uh, everyone has realised that when you get your flu jab, um, it would also be a good idea. It would be more efficient and potentially more effective to also get your booster. And um, as I understand it, the latest information is that it is safe to do that. Mm. The, the efficacy is there. Um, so I would expect now I know a lot of people have already had flu jabs, but as we do move forward and they move down the age range, um, that people receive their, their booster jabs with also their flu jabs. Um, and yes, there's a quick of them, but my expectation would be um, that we will know by the end of the month whether that program is really up and running and working to scale and in time as required. Well, one would hope so, because the cold months are the most um, dangerous, so, so we understand. So let's go back to what you were saying before, which is perhaps even a more serious thing, that the, the NHS, which is under, well, it's under pressure all the time, but under even more pressure than it's been in its history, why is it not utilising the private hospitals that it's, in theory, able to use? It seems crazy not to. Is it, is it a territorial thing? Well, um, people not wanting to give up control. Yeah, I think I think the first thing is that I mean uh, we are in a world away um, from where we were uh, before the year two thousand, before the year two thousand, um, and Tony Blair and Alan Milburn signing what was called a concordat with the independent sector, which meant that NHS funded NHS patients could receive. Um, some of their care treatment um, in Britain's independent hospitals. Um, ever since that sort of Berlin Wall was brought down by Tony Blair um, and the sectors uh, have worked much more cooperatively together. And one of the reasons of doing that, remember in the early noughties when Tony Blair said he wanted to spend a lot more money on the NHS and bring the expenditure into line with Europe, well, the other thing he realised was that he was literally the only prime minister in Europe, can you believe this, who was not fully mobilising his independent sector for, his, for the advantage of his state-funded patients. So I think for Tony Blair, it was about coming into line with Europe. Now, before COVID, um, that deal has, has gone on. It went on under Tony Blair. It went on through Gordon Brown, David Cameron. It continues to this day. So before COVID, um, uh, 
uh, the data shows that more than 2,300 patients were receiving uh, their NHS care and treatment um, in the independent sector every day of the year. That's many, many hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people who are receiving NHS care that they might not have otherwise had in such a timely way. But the, what's happened very recently, although you know, the independent sector carries on working, uh, for some reason, um, that number has dipped to just over uh, 2,150. And so um, um, given that the NHS is under such pressure, given that it has what must be in excess now of 5.6 million people on, on its waiting list, and given uh, a proportion of those have now been waiting for more than a year, which is extraordinary, um, one can only hope that at regional and particularly at local level, and here at local level, people in a working across sector is so important in a sort of cooperative and collective way, um, um, that, that actually uh, things get back on track because uh, it's rather like with an airline. If you're flying, you know, a jumbo jet from London to New York, but you've got 10 seats free, well, you might as well get the extra, you know, travellers on board. Yes. Um, yeah, get, get, you know, and it's the same uh, with any hospital in the world. You know, hospitals often work best when they're at capacity. They always need a bit of spare capacity, you know, they, they don't want to be at sort of 100% because that gives you no wiggle removing moving people around bed or step down or step up or ICU or whatever you need. So you always need some wiggle room. But um, if you are running a hospital anywhere in the world and you have a little bit of spare capacity, particularly at times of pressure like that we're witnessing in the United Kingdom, it's, it's important to mobilise all your resource, particularly for the advantage of your, of your um, state-funded uh, NHS patients. Mm, well, that makes sense. Let's see how it uh, turns out, Tim. Uh, time for us to take a, a quick breather before we turn to our last topic. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio, where I'm in conversation with Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Uh, Tim, our final topic, please, for today. I was very moved um, when it was announced uh, recently in the House of Lords uh, that the Labour peer, Frank Field, uh, is uh, terminally ill. Um, uh, I think Frank Field uh, is someone who, he's one of those politicians, he's rather like David Amos, uh, whichever tribe he or she might be formerly a member of, they're, they're genuinely respected by people of all stripes yes. um, and of all political persuasions. F fewer of them than there used to be, I feel, but yes. Yes, I mean, well... I've never heard anybody have a bad word to say about Frank Field. Exactly, and, 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 that, and that's, I think, part of the greatness of, of, of him. Um, very much a Labour politician, like many politicians, though slightly quirky, um, uh, he, a, a, a Christian through and through, uh, someone who's riven with the almost 19th century tradition of British socialism, not only a Christian socialist, but someone very much in the mutualist and the cooperative tradition. So he believed in 
what some people have described as socialism without the state, of, of, of not simply the phrase public ownership being equated with state ownership, but that often public ownership being equated with the concept that actual and real members of the public mm own stuff. Now, of course, you see that today, whether um, you see it with the John Lewis partnership or very various cooperative enterprises. But that was the, um, the tradition uh, that Frankfield is from. And on that basis, he was always able to have really interesting conversations, uh, be it with the sort of left of the Labour Party, um, or the right wing of the Labour Party. I remember very early in May 1994, as 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 Tony Blair was becoming this new star of sort of new Labour in 94, um, uh, Tony Blair did an interesting speech uh, about the history of the cooperative and friendly society movement very much being one of the core elements of Labour tradition. No one extolled the virtues of that movement more than Frank Field. So it's really, really, really sad uh, that he is so poorly um, and is so close in. And all the more extraordinary uh, where this um, there was announced in the House of Lords um, 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 uh, during the reading um, of, 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 an assist, of the assisted dying bill. Um, uh, uh, and I thought that really was very, very moving. And you know when you've got a great politician, um, when they're actually loved by all sides, they've almost, particularly when they've entered the House of Lords, they almost transcend, you know, stripe or tribe. Um, and it was, it was quite moving to watch it. Mm. Um, yeah, it's an interesting question. It's a, obviously a terribly difficult um, debate. You can understand the argument on both sides. One can't with every political topic, but on this one, I think almost everybody can sort of see um, the arguments on both sides. But I'm quite intrigued because you pointed out to me that, that you you picked up on one of Frank Field's, I was going to say earlier ideas, but probably mid-career idea for him. He's been going around quite a long time and pointing me towards a, a paper you wrote based on an idea of his back in, was it 1990? Hard to think that's over 30 years ago, Tim. Yeah, I wrote a think tank uh, paper. I'd, I'd read uh, an article that mentioned Frank Field. It was in the Sunday Times um, in July 1990, uh, and it was called Giving uh, the, the Public a Bigger Dole of Authority. And he talked about the historic role of friendly societies and, and the sort of cooperative tradition. And this article really fascinated me because it was quite unusual. In a way, although it was published in 1990, in, in, in a way it was, it was sort of five or ten years ahead, I have to say, of what later become, uh, became New Labour. And, um, uh, and yes, I wrote a paper where I explored the role of mutuals, cooperatives, um, um, it, it, you know, in the context of the welfare state. Um, and I not only published that paper in 1990, but I actually went on to, to write several other things. Later, when I was the public affairs director in, in the mid and late 1990s for Britain's independent health and social care sector, um, uh, and I actually went on to represent uh, many organisations uh, be they in the mutual or charitable or cooperative tradition, uh, really Frankfield and his ideas and the world he'd opened up before me were always in my mind. I mean, I found myself in a job where I was representing great charities uh, like um, uh, uh, Nuffield Hospitals um, or the Royal Hospital for Neurodisability in Putney uh, or uh, Tadworth Court, uh, which became a charity, although some years ago, it used to be the 
what you might call the country wing of Great Ormond Street, uh, right through to the National Union of Mine Workers uh, convalescent homes, uh, and also many other what you might call trade union aligned independent healthcare schemes, for it one being Benenden Healthcare, which has more than a million members and is headquartered down in Kent. But it was really Frank that opened up my eyes to that movement of what used to be called collective self-help um, or, or, or indeed various forms of socialism without the state. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I think whatever your own academic discipline is, whether you know, do, do philosophy or theology or sociology or, or politics or economics or, or, or physics, um, when you come across great thinkers uh, who open up a completely new vector in your area of interest to you, um, you are to an extent permanently in, your, in, in debt. And so I have a tremendous amount of respect and fellow feeling for Frank Field. Um, and, um, and I know uh, that, that clearly there are lots of people in the Palace of Westminster uh, who will miss him. Yeah. We're almost out of time. I was intrigued by one thing in your paper, which I, I, I didn't know, talking about how the, the non-state system uh, by 1911 was covering over 9 million people, but about how subsequently the BMA and the private insurance companies were lobbied the government because they were so opposed to the friendly societies, basically because they feared the, the competition. They didn't like the idea that the friendly societies might be um, essentially you know, poaching business that they felt was theirs. Yes, it, this is true. And it's actually written up in huge detail by a brilliant, a brilliant um, a book uh, published um, many years ago, I think in the late 80s, mid 80s, late 80s, by Dr. David Green, who at the time had been a Labour councillor, I think on Nottingham City Council. And the book is called Working Class Patients and the Medical Establishment. Um, and the reality is that although Lloyd George um, very much championed the National Insurance Act of 1911 and wanted in many ways to extend uh, friendly society benefits and this sort of socialism without the state to more people. Um, when the bill was going through Parliament, uh, the posher, uh, more middle class uh, uh, provident associations, um, as well as the BMA, um, I think they held, uh, they hired a lobbyist, I think the lobbyist, I think, we are delving into my memory here, was J.W.B. Braithwaite, um, and Lloyd George lost control of the bill, um, it was turned on its head, and the bill actually was used um, to further the interests of uh, the well-heeled doctors. The doctors in this country at that point had long resented um, uh, the friendly societies. Um, remember in the 19th century, in their own records, the, the BMA referred to themselves as medical gentlemen, and they somewhat resented being tied down both in terms of pay and status to what ordinary people through their trade unions and their friendly societies were prepared to pay for their services. But anyway, Lloyd George lost control of the bill and between 1911 and 1915, uh, because doctors could now access a guaranteed salary from the new tax that was national insurance, the average doctor in Britain doubled their salary between 1911 and 1915. And to administer the new system, for example, the panel and the GP services, uh, the government had to create by 1919, the Department of Health. Um, of course, decades later, um, I think it was Niren Bevan who said that to uh, create the National Health Service itself, he'd had to stuff uh, the, 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 the doctor's mouths with gold. Um, 
uh, one of the uh, one of the clever things I think about the British Medical Association, if I can speak candidly, is is you often see them use these wonderful lobby phrases on television, and but there's an interesting logic attached. So you know, someone from the BMA will say doctors are so important, uh, and healthcare is so important. Uh, our healthcare should be on monetary consideration. And we all sit there and nod sagely in a civilized society. Yes, it should. <laughs> then they add, that's why our members should have a five or seven or 10% pay increase. And it always makes me smile um, when you really know the history of this and certainly the class aspects of it, um, um, that you're actually dealing with a good old fashioned professional power, which of course goes back to the ancient days of Rome um, and, uh, and Greece and so on. Jim. Um, fascinating as ever. We haven't even scratched the surface of this, but yes, Frank Field, as you say, will be will be sorely missed. I have been in conversation with Tim Evans, who's Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Tim will be joining me again in a fortnight's time. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.